I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Brian Gong, welcome to the Good Counsel Podcast. Brian Gong of Mangrove Therapy Group. Yes, thank you. All right. It's great to have you out here this morning. It's nice to be here. Well, it's actually not morning anymore. Thank you for coming out. Like I said, it's great to have you. You are an EMDR-approved consultant with the EMDR International Association. So we'll talk a little bit for starts about what that is exactly. Okay. So what is an approved consultant? So the EMDR International Association is the professional association that sort of sets the standards for EMDR training across the United States. And there are a few credentials. They designate based on various degrees of training and experience. And so you can get trained, and then you can get certified by getting additional consultation and more experience. And then then the next step is to become an approved consultant to provide that consultation for people who are looking to get trained and looking to get certified. And so being an MGA-approved consultant means that you can provide these consultation hours to new therapists looking to improve their skills. Understood. Thank you. You're still seeing people for EMDR in your practice, and you're doing training, and you're doing consulting. Busy guy. Busy, yes. And it's just, I don't know, I, I think we love what we do, you know, being able to help people and um, help them get out of just really unhealthy patterns and just feel better and be more effective in life. It's a blessing to be able to uh, help people in their journeys. It really is. I love the technique. I love the modality. So you and I have some shared overlapping past and Mm -hmm. we were both primary therapists at the Karen Renaissance Treatment Center for a period of time. Mm -hmm. You were there first and I worked there after you. If I'm not mistaken, you got your EMDR training while you were a primary therapist there? I was working there as a primary therapist, great facility, did some great work. And at the same time, I noticed that there were some people that just were reaching a stuck point or they weren't getting uh, better. Um, They had a ton of insight into why they were doing what they were doing. They had a ton of awareness as to what past experiences contributed to the way they felt about themselves, the dysfunctional relationships they would be in. And yet they were still in those patterns. And I was like, man, like there's got to be something else that we can do. And um, I went and got trained in EMDR. And I was sort of doing it on the down low, utilizing that therapy to help people. And people were getting better. And then one day we were in rounds and (laughs) I disclosed that uh, I was practicing EMDR and it just sort of took off. And now I believe it's part of the standard programming over there. Definitely was. Because after you... Uh, I was there as a primary therapist. I wanted to pursue EMDR for similar reasons. I really thought the modality of the treatment 
program kind of supported it mm -hmm. because there was so much trauma focus. They were already doing dialectic behavior therapy. And I, and I, I, had, I would always, I was always intrigued and I was doing the grief and loss work mm -hmm. specialty anyway. And so I went and did the training and I think there were just those people, those clinicians that when you take that EMDR training and you kind of see what's really going on and how it works, you get bitten by that bug. Drink the Kool-Aid. You drink the Kool-Aid. Yep. And I was really, I was all in from mm -hmm. there. I just, I wanted to do it. I, I completed the training. I practiced there. I practiced um, after there. I worked in another program where I was doing EMDR in private practice. Mm -hmm. I went on working with a, a consultant to become a certified EMDR therapist. Again, it's such a dynamic modality of therapy in terms of moving people beyond stuck points. And yeah. I was really excited to get you on here today. Like I said, you're a consultant, so you really kind of reached that sort of highest level of mastery. Obviously, you've taken it to a pretty high level. And so clearly, you have a passion and motivation for it. Definitely. I, I get a lot of... Uh professional and personal satisfaction from sort of paying it forward, being able to teach the new generations of clinicians how to be more effective in their roles uh, to help people. There's a desire for me to help in any way I can to promote really strong evidence-based practices that can just help the world heal from their stuff. You've been very active in the kind of volunteer and community activism around EMDR mm -hmm. and around uh, supporting the community and supporting the public with volunteer trauma therapy services. And you are actually faculty for the Humanitarian Assistance Program. Yes. So the, the organization is called Trauma Recovery EMDR Humanitarian Assistance Programs, uh, otherwise known as Trauma Recovery HAP, or otherwise known as just HAP in the EMDR world. And, uh, and so HAP's been around uh, for decades. It was founded by the founder of EMDR, Francine Shapiro. And the mission is essentially to uh, expand the capacity for EMDR in underprivileged um, areas. And so a big component of the organization does uh, high-quality training, um, to government and nonprofit organizations. And so really only allowing people to take trainings uh, who work for nonprofits or for governments at a low cost. Um, and it was Francine Shapiro's uh, dream for everyone have the opportunity for healing from EMDR therapy. And so, um, but just because we train, you know, people with not from nonprofits and, you know, government organizations doesn't mean it's uh, that there's any, sacrificing of quality i mean it's the it's the highest quality the, it's such a rigorous process in being on the training faculty um excellent trainings and so i volunteer to facilitate emdr basic trainings and uh and what, so what that means is so when you take a, a training the f morning portion is lecture and the afternoon portion is uh, a practicum where the trainees are practicing emdr with each other you know working through actual stuff from their personal lives and um, it's my job to help teach them and facilitate and coach them on how to do it effectively. And it's really amazing. It's just, it's such a great pr opportunity to 
being there right from the beginning to help people learn how to practice EMDR from the beginning. So it's awesome. And, and so uh, Trauma Recovery HAP also operates or manages a network of trauma recovery networks. Um, and, and so a trauma recovery network uh, is a local group of pro bono EMDR therapists who respond to disasters in their community um, by providing a brief time-limited EMDR therapy because it's super effective for recent traumatic events. And it's just a great modality to use for people who've been acutely traumatized. Um, and so currently there's about 50 across the country with new ones being added all the time. And uh, you know each one operates uh, pretty independently and Trauma Recovery HAP essentially is the umbrella organization for that. And so after the Parkland shooting at Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018, myself and my buddy, uh, Larry Schreier, who was also a uh, clinician up uh, in Palm Beach Gardens, we started a local trauma recovery network here to respond. And man, that was, man, we, it, was it was some hairy work, but really rewarding, you know? Um, we saw dozens of teachers and students and first responders and family members who were traumatized, right? And, and, and so like, it was an opportunity for us who felt awful about what happened in our own backyard to uh, respond and help get people back to baseline um, after experiencing really acute trauma symptoms. And, um, you know, for the most part, you know, a handful of sessions and they were ready to go, um, you know, back to quote unquote normal, whatever that, whatever that means. And, um, and so, yeah, that's what a trauma recovery network is. And yours that you actually established is the Southeast Florida Recovery Network? Yeah, the Southeast Florida Trauma Recovery Network. I mean, when the shooting happened, we were sort of flying by the seat of our pants. We, uh, we did a bunch of recruiting. We found 20 or so therapists that were willing to do that pro bono work. And, uh, and we just started taking on clients. Uh, people from the school were uh, referring people to us. Um, people in the community heard about us. And uh, every, every Saturday for about a year after the shooting, I was borrowing an office down in uh, Coconut Creek near the school. And this amazing pediatrician gave me the keys to her office and said, hey, use my office. And so I was just treating people out of her office on Saturdays uh, who were traumatized. And um, the idea is that every community in the country can have a local TRN that can respond to community disasters. Who is more uh, equipped and ready and um, invested in helping the community than the people who live in the community? And, uh, and so that is the a really strong initiative that Trauma Recovery HAP has been trying to promote and further in their mission. It's really amazing stuff. Well, it's amazing what you did to mobilize in such a way and actually take this treatment modality and true to the mission of the organization and really of the founder to kind of create an opportunity to respond in such a quick way, to be able to mobilize those kind of resources too, to assemble that sort of talent and to be able to respond the way that you did. I'm sure you guys helped a lot of people. Yeah, it was really, uh, it was really good work. You can always tell 
when somebody has, you know, accomplished something exceptional in the field, because as you're talking about it, my first reaction is, I wish I could have been part of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hey, so, sign up. I, I would. I will. <laughs> I will. But I, I mean, at the same time, it's like, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm rooting for the occurrence of another disaster right. to participate in. But uh, I think it's really cool. And I, I, I would love to be part of something like that. You know, uh, I was talking with a colleague about starting a TRN prior to that and just kept procrastinating it because there's this mentality like we have time, not in my, not in my community. And then all of a sudden it happened and, and the whole therapy community was um, wounded and felt helpless. And, um, you know, with, the, with climate change, with, with increased gun violence, uh, Unfortunately, uh, we will see more um, tragedies uh, happen across the world. And we ought to be in a, a really strong place to respond. I think there's a part of people, like a part of our society, that because these tragedies have become almost so commonplace, the way these news cycles work... Mm -hmm that we have become a little bit desensitized and people's attention to the idea of taking action, it's sort of almost time limited. So when you think about something occurring and the time it might take to mobilize and take mm -hmm. action, and then, you know, that takes a couple of days and a few weeks and whatever. And then it's sort of like, I don't know, our short attention spans could kind of have moved on to something else by then. Yeah. Because there's always another big event that occurs in the wake of other events. And it just is, I mean, how many of these school shootings have there been to where sometimes they occur in parts of the country? And if you're not on top of the news all of the time, you may not even really hear about it for like a few days because there's that many of them occurring. It's, I mean, I feel desensitized myself. I hear about something on the news or on Twitter and I'm like, huh. Okay, and I scroll right by it sometimes, and and I hate that it's become like that. But um, I have I have been desensitized to the uh, just the frequency of these events happening all the time. I, I'm not sure what can be done about that, um, and I hope people much smarter than me can figure out a solution. But uh, it uh, it's it's unfortunate, that's for sure. Well, I think you've kind of done it. Because you've made, you've taken a personal stake in being involved. Because once you actually are involved with people who are part of these tragedies, they are no longer like the nameless, faceless victims of the news cycle. Mm -hmm. They're become the actual people. And so you've kind of committed. And when you commit like that in official capacity, you're involved like people are calling you they're coming to you and you're seeing them and talking to them yeah so for sure your level of engagement on this actually starting uh, a trauma recovery network in the community one that's now sustainable for whatever happens next the fact that you've attracted people you've already done it because if it happens here again you'll be participating people will be looking for you i don't think you'd tell them no Let's just say I hope that um, another community tragedy doesn't come for a while. But there are, there, it depends on what your definition of tragedy is, right? Uh, we we got some requests after um, Hurricane Dorian hit the Bahamas, and uh, and there were some 
you know, refugees who came to America who had family and uh, you know, people without resources or unable to work. And so um, people came to us because we would be able to respond effectively. Um, COVID hit. You know, that's a tragedy in itself from a much greater scale. We would love to get to a point where we can respond at some point in the future to, to all of these tragedies. Uh, unfortunately, there's just so much happening across the world. Yeah, there is. It's a really sad thing. But again, I think what we can do is do what you can as an individual. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty cool that you've gotten involved in these things. It's really, uh, you know, when it sort of hits that mark, when you kind of hear about it, and you say, wow, I, I'd really like to be involved in something like that. Like, how could I participate in that? You know, it's, mm-hmm. like it, it's infectious enough to attract other people. If anyone's interested in uh, learning more about uh, Trauma Recovery Hap, they can go to their website, emdrhap.org. If uh, an EMDR clinician is listening to this and wants to volunteer some time to be on the fa- uh, the training faculty, um, go to the website, sign up. We, we're always welcoming um, new, you know, talented individuals to join the team and the mission. It looks like the majority of what they take on are uh, consultants. Yes, yes. So yes. you have to kind of be a consultant in order to to participate mm-hmm. in, in these trainings. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about EMDR and what it actually is. Sure. For people who don't know. So EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And that in itself is kind of interesting because a lot of the- It's a mouthful. It's it's definitely a mouthful. And a lot of the way it's administered these days, we're not always relying on eye movement, right? Right. Like a lot of folks, I I use the, um, you know, the theratappers Mm -hmm. and paddles uh, because it's really sort of more about accomplishing this, what we call bilateral stimulation. Right. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what that is. I feel like it's always a challenge to explain to people who don't know what EMDR is, what it is and how it works and why they would even want to do it. Right, right. You know, when when I was in graduate school, one of the classes, the professor asked us to pick a controversial treatment and um, do a presentation to the class on them. And EMDR was listed there as well as a variety of other ones. I ended up having... uh, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. But but I remember EMDR being listed as this controversial treatment. So I'm like, oh, you know, is this a controversial? But what I find is that it's an evidence-based psychotherapy that um, uh, is endorsed by a variety of national and international organizations, a ton of robust research in its efficacy in treating uh, trauma and a variety of other psychological disorders. And, and so, essentially, it's based on this premise that uh, current pathology or current issues uh, stem from insufficiently processed memories from the past. And in EMDR therapy, the, you, essentially will, you and the client will essentially search for the memories that still have some yuck attached to them and reprocess them so that the current issues uh, end up resolving. And so... We, you know, we go through life and, you know, hard things happen, but at some point we talk about them, we dream about them, we think about them, and then they're just things from the past, right? But when, 
when things happen that have enough emotional arousal that goes beyond the ability of our brain to process at the time, some of that experience sort of just gets stuck, almost frozen in time, so to speak. And uh, I like to talk to clients about, uh, you know, it's like something bad happens, you shove it in a box, put the lid on, and hope to never think about it again, and uh, go through life and just accumulate boxes of stuff. Even though we're not thinking about what's in the boxes, there's always stuff leaking out. Um, and then there's always stuff getting triggered or activated. And EMDR is an effective way of working through whatever's in those boxes to reprocess them, neutralize them, so that uh, the current issues end up getting resolved. So it's interesting. If I was to bring up with you some experience I had, some unpleasant experience mm -hmm. I had in, as a, say, a child, mm -hmm. how is EMDR different than just, say, talking about what happened? Yeah, I think, I think for decades, people have been talking about traumatic events. And there is the power of verbalizing and providing a narrative of what happened to tap into some of the emotion and the, and the ugh that's in, in those experiences. And it does take some of the power away. Um, EMDR just takes things further and it really reprocesses those experiences so that they essentially become neutralized and integrated as just some part of a person's experience where there's learning and uh, uh, we call adaptive resolution. Right? Yeah. So if I had this traumatic experience and I had the opportunity to do EMDR, we're going to desensitize me to the experience to where I can actually sort of run through or think about the events that occurred, but somehow or other the emotional reactivity associated with that has sort of dissipated, right? And this is, this is measurable through subjective units of distress, we call that SUDS. So if we bring this up and I'm talking to you and I'm at this like 10 and we're doing this desensitization, the goal is how can we reorganize my perspective on this, my visual, my emotional, to where I can tell you about this, but I'm at like a zero, mm -hmm. right? That's sort of the optimal goal. That's the optimal goal, right? I mean, and you know, and you know there's still stuff there that when you can sort of bring up a memory into your, into your mind. And um, if you feel something, if you notice some disturbance attached to this memory, then there's still stuff to work through. And the goal for EMDR is to um, get it so that there's nothing at all. And... Um, I'm sure you've had many clients who can tell you or share with you about their traumatic experiences sort of as a story and never really actually addressing the stuff that's contained in those experiences. They've been used to telling people about their story their whole lives, and it's kind of just like this rote storytelling. You know, with the MDR, it really gets in there and in, in a deep and meaningful way to reprocess that stuff. And, you know, EMDR is listed as a first-line therapy for... PTSD and a variety of international and national um, treatment guidelines. And it's, you know, it's just such a powerful therapy approach, which is backed by, by research. But a lot, of, a, lot of people, a lot of people associate EMDR therapy with the classic capital T traumatic events. But you know, it's really important to, you know, mo most of the work 
I imagine in your practice as well, it, it's not about those big T traumatic events, uh, combat, car accident, you know, sexual assault, that too, but it's, um, you know, a critical parent, uh, bullying, you know, feelings of uh, abandonment. The, these are the things that um, comprise the bulk of the EMDR work that I do in my practice. You know, someone comes in for um, perfectionism and they're feeling burned out because they just can't stop with this sense of achievement. There's this unrelenting standard that they place on most things where anything less is a source, a sense of failure or inadequacy. And, um, and if we can sort of work backwards and identify, well, what experiences of inadequacy, I'm not good enough, I'm not enough, I'm not important, are there from uh, youth or childhood and reprocess those, then that feeling of I'm not good enough in my adult life ends up uh, dissipating, right? Because the um, contributing experiences that are still insufficiently processed um, from a person's earlier life uh, end up becoming resolved. And uh, when you can see people make profound change in that, uh, those core negative beliefs, not just a one-off acute trauma, but, but how they see themselves in the world, man, it's really gratifying. And that, that is a lot of the EMDR work, EMDR work that people do on a regular basis. And so if, if anyone's listening and they can relate to some of that stuff, then you know, maybe that therapy could be helpful. Yeah, I think for me it's kind of similar where you meet folks who are maybe at this current age or this current place of their life or having some sort of problem. And I feel like the leakage of these earlier traumatic events or the family of origin traumas, mm-hmm. they often sort of show up in interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. right? So the closer you are to the people, if you're attempting to have like an intimate relationship or have like, you know, a marriage or have a family, or maybe it's your workplace and you work really closely with other people, but there's leakage and it's always in the form of interpersonal relationships because in a sense, these interactions that you're having with people they become in some way like emotionally reminiscent of something mm-hmm. from way back there. That's right. And it may be out of consciousness. Like we may not really have full access as to why this supervisor evokes such a strong reaction to me when I hear the sound of his shoes clacking <laughs> on the wooden mm-hmm. floor outside my office why i feel like such a strong reaction to this person or the sound of someone's voice mm-hmm. or whatever the thing is and if you kind of go back you can see that we're reliving something and it's really sort of fascinating and when people kind of hone in on those targets and are able to desensitize whatever it was Maybe this consistent feeling of being unheard or unseen or, like you said, not good enough or just feeling weak and vulnerable to Mm -hmm. be bullied by anyone and everyone who came along. And you're able to to desensitize that, to look at it and say, that that didn't happen because you were weak. I mean- how tough exactly are you supposed to be when you're four? You know, exactly. like how who's whose ass are you going to be at four years old? You know what I mean, or whatever the thing is. 
and you have now this more realistic look at it because the self-attribution of where I was failing as a person mm-hmm. because of my inadequacy, that's removed because now we're able to see it in the way that more of like an objective, I would look at it. From the adult perspective. From the adult perspective of, mm-hmm. yeah, I was, I was six years old. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Am I blaming myself for all these things? Or, you know, I was only 10 and, you know, my caregivers really, no one taught me how to do this or that. So it's always, you can kind of reprocess that stuff and get a very different look mm-hmm. at it and feel differently about it. And then hopefully, theoretically, and as we've seen in practice, sure. that shift will show up in your current day reality. Yeah, there, there are a lot of people that uh, know that they are competent and adequate and worthwhile, but in their gut, they feel inadequate or not good enough, not important, or they, like, I, I know I'm safe. I'm currently sitting in Boca Raton, Florida, but I feel like there's danger look, lurking all around. Or that discrepancy between this intellectual understanding of ourselves and our situations doesn't always match up with this just sense um and and oftentimes there's this unresolved stuff at the core of that right like uh, i know i'm worthwhile but why do i feel so worthless all the time and it's usually because there are these wounded parts these these unprocessed experiences full of shame and worthlessness from um, childhood that can be resolved and addressed so that what i know to be true about myself can sort of link up and match Man, it's a really freeing and a beautiful process when it can be done well. Freeing. Yeah. That's the word. So that's really what we're trying to accomplish. It's an interesting mechanism, and I found it at first unusual. Weird. That you're essentially almost relying on the use of imagination for this adaptive information processing. Like your brain almost kind of knows how to rewrite that story right. if you're willing to stay out of the way and that you can create help for yourself. I'm a big fan of Laurel Parnell and the mm-hmm. attachment, attachment-focused trauma resolution. And she's big on the use of resources, like creating these kind of characters that you can utilize when reprocessing mm-hmm. trauma. And I've come to really like and rely on that so that when I'm doing reprocessing work with people or desensitization with people and a need arises, you could, because you, once you start processing with people, you get a better sense of what was missing. Mm-hmm. Be like, wow, it would have been really great if this person had an adult around that they trusted enough to listen to them. There just wasn't a person like that. That's what's missing here. So maybe we should focus on creating that for them. Or it would have been really nice if this person had some of what they did that was good acknowledged because they felt like they were always criticism and uh, their achievements were overlooked. So we can create some of that. Or uh, maybe they just felt like they never really had any friends and that there was, so we can create like who would have been a good, friend for you you help them install these supportive and nurturing attachment figures that can help in the reprocessing work that you do that's awesome I, i've seen you uh 
write or post about uh, um, your alignment with uh, Laura Pornell's work and the attachment uh, focus EMDR work. Yeah, it's really awesome. I loved it when I heard about it. And so the lady that did the consultation with me while I was going for my certification, her name is Rachel Starr, and she's a a big Laurel Parnell fan mm-hmm. and attachments focused EMDR. So, you know, I, I followed suit, obviously. If it was good enough for her, it was good enough for me. And so we were actually doing sessions. I did a couple with her to pro- reprocess for myself mm-hmm. because it's good to go through it with someone or to do EMDR sessions with someone when you're a practitioner. It's not necessary, but it definitely gives you a little bit of a nuanced look at what the experience is on the other side of it. And this is really kind of what drew me in and my buy-in for the idea of the attachment figures and the creation of these characters. So I actually grew up in a very loud house. Uh, Both of my parents are born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And most of the communication in my childhood home was at like a loud pit, like a loud (laughs) volume and pitch. Everything was yelling it could be for, and it was always like from four rooms away. So it was always like, who left the dishes in the sink? What? The dishes in the sink? What? You know, so everything was just, I grew up like that. My parents are not bad people. They're not abusive people. Huh. They're just, it was loud. And I was the youngest of three. So you get the siblings involved mm-hmm. in it. It's just like a lot of loud. And I wasn't really of loud. I was kind of more, um, more of a, a quiet, more mild-mannered individual. So to me, as a little kid, all of this noise was, like, overwhelming. So as we're kind of, like, reprocessing childhood stuff, uh, I'm asked to kind of pick a nurturing figure. And I picked... She just came right to my mind. It was She was just right there. I picked Florida Evans from the show Good Times. You ever see the show Good oh, Times? Oh, yeah. With JJ and, uh-huh. you know, and Michael and everybody. So I picked the mom, Florida Evans from Good Times. And I'm like, I don't know why, but this is the lady I want. And while we're processing through stuff, I figured out why it was she was the one I wanted. Because in the show, if you notice, whenever one of the kids gets in trouble or something, she always stops and talks to them about it. Like, JJ, why did you lie to your father? Michael, why are you so angry? You know? Thelma, why didn't you tell us about whatever? That's what you needed. Totally. And I created that, like, in those moments, that was my mom. Stop and ask me. And actually take a second to listen to the answer. And suddenly, the little kid in me um, had, like, a whole bunch of things to say. because there's some, And and it, it just sort of shifted how I viewed that little part of my life was... Um, it wasn't that I was mute, you know? It was just that it was really hard to feel like you can get a word in edgewise. It's with- amazing how we can heal from those uh, early uh, injuries and uh, experience healing, for sure. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, it's cool. I, I almost feel compelled to because, again, the challenge is when you do EMDR and you're a big proponent of it, you're a practitioner, Mm -hmm. and then you got to explain to somebody how it works. You got to explain to a client or someone who's not from the therapeutic world how this is going to help them. And if I don't have that story to tell, 
or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could go with the regular technique, but ultimately you end up sort of saying, look, it's going to make a lot more sense when we do it. So, but stories like that uh, kind of become part of the package at the time. I'm sure that's super helpful. I hope so. I don't know. Not everybody <laughs> likes good times. I do. You know, certainly the uh, the sitcoms from that era have the best music. Right. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. So that that's a little bit of uh, how that, at least how I conceptualize how that part of it works. And I like helping other people to do that. And then when we're sort of processing their experiences, they now have this kind of creative way of, because it's fun to create like who's going to help you and to sort of figure out what it was that you didn't have that you needed i learned a long time ago that if you were to ask a client do you have any trauma many would say no and i think that the definition mainstream has unfortunately encompassed a pretty small subset on what i believe trauma is um and those are the stereotypical traumatic events right that uh, people think of as trauma getting shot at, uh, getting assaulted, going through an earthquake or a tsunami. But those experiences where you're, you describe your parents as being um, good parents with a high decibel level, um, but there were experiences you had in your mind of feeling that your needs were unmet. And those stuck with you and you were able to reprocess it. But I guess uh, I, my hope is that if anyone's listening to this podcast, they can their own experiences that are similar that they might not have thought of as worthy of attention can consider doing some work around that stuff because that is the bulk of the reasons why people end up coming into therapy usually. It's these more subtle, we can call them little t, traumas or non-nurturing experiences. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Sure. You know, one of the things that Rachel... Rachel Starr again, you know, when we're talking, she said, if you ask someone, did you experience childhood trauma? The vast majority of people are going to tell you no. Mm -hmm. And she said, okay, conceptualize that differently. Ask about it in a different way. Ask them, as a child, was there ever a time when you felt unloved or uncared for? Go about it that way. Because there are a lot more people that will answer yes to that question than will answer yes to the uh, endorsing the experience of childhood trauma. Because they're they're a lot more yeah you know as a little kid they there was high conflict or there just wasn't really anyone around or I don't know this parent or that parent was aloof and inaccessible or inattentive and I didn't get whatever it was I thought I needed and have some feelings about it and even as an adult have difficulty getting these same things mm-hmm. in my relationships and keep kind of like reliving this like pattern of unworthiness or whatever it is mm-hmm. and i think that's what the majority because a lot of you know a lot of these folks are really high functioning but it's always i i see that it always sort of shows up maybe that is the attachment focus and maybe that's what my i'm i'm looking for but i feel like it always sort of shows up in the interpersonal relationships you know in the attempts at like intimacy and being close to other people where where we're gonna like struggle the most sure. if this like family of origin stuff is not met with some resolution yeah i i agree so much trauma is interpersonal in nature feelings of hurt and betrayal are so common in those experiences with families of origin and uh 
I just really encourage everyone to do their work. I, I think that uh, in your intro, I listened to a few of your podcast episodes, uh, like Thank I said. Um, excellent, by the way. And I think in your intro, you, you mentioned that no one gets through life unscathed. And I, I totally believe that parents do the best with what they have, for the most part. And yet sometimes there's just a mismatch or things happen inadvertently. And we leave our childhood with some injuries. And uh, the wonderful thing is that we can work on these things and heal them and have a really amazing life. Yeah, it's a lot. And look, this is America. You know, we are, uh, we are blessed here mm-hmm. with resources and things. But still, it's a lot that... Um, dude, I'm getting a spammerous call. Getting a spammerous call. Interrupting the Good Counsel podcast is unacceptable. <laughs> You ever get a call uh, from your own phone number? That I have not. Yeah, I was like, hey, look, I'm calling myself. How's that happen? Man, they have, these spammers, they, they've got all the tech. That is amazing. Yeah. I didn't answer it. <laughs> it's a call from your, your subconscious or something, you know? <laughs> or either that you're so in demand that yourself has to call you to make an appointment, you know? Yeah, so I think these are a lot of the things that we sort of uh, hope to accomplish or like these targets for people. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of a lot of that work is. And it's almost more when you have the folks with the larger T traumas, Mm -hmm. those people who have been the victims of violent crime, Mm -hmm. war, these things, where the targets are more clear and accessible, because you know what the trauma is, you know, exactly what you're going after. Um, but I think even with those folks, there's often, it's often surprising what is beyond all of that and like what early experiences they have. It's like the unicorn when someone comes into your office with a really nurturing and supportive upbringing and they have this one event that seems to keep showing up that they want to work through. And it's like, well, who are you? This is the unicorn. Um, but most most people, uh, as I'm sure you can relate to, uh, have a mountain range of traumatic or adverse or non-nurturing experiences. And so little, some little mountains, some big mountains, right? And all in between. And uh, the trick is coming up with a treatment plan that can you know, really help them out the most. But, but I do find that uh, there's a medley of stuff that people bring into the therapy office. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's the versatility of like good practice, right? Mm-hmm. And the ability to like use the protocols and then sprinkle in other stuff. Yeah. So that's good. So what's on the horizon for Mangrove Therapy <laughs> Group and what are you guys up to these days? Well, so Mangrove Therapy Group is a group practice based out of East Delray Beach and we specialize in trauma and addiction, which we believe go hand in hand. And we chose mangrove for a variety of reasons it's super important for the florida ecosystem but essentially because the mangroves are known for their roots and we believe that it's all about getting at the root of the issue these old experiences that seem to be at the heart of the current struggles and we really are focusing our practice on having a strong team of clinicians who can help clients get at those roots and so um, to have a freeing therapeutic experience and uh, and achieve recovery and so we 
uh, we're growing. We hired our first associate uh, recently. We have another one coming on uh, next month. And uh, we're just excited at providing a high level of psychotherapy for our clients. That's exciting. So um, there's four of you now. Yes. Do you have a vision of where you're going? You know, I've always thought of myself as like a trenches guy. So I just kind of see us helping people. Who knows where that will go? But uh, for now, we just want to do effective psychotherapy with clients who need help resolving their issues. And um, that's what we're going to do. Fantastic. So if someone wanted to get in touch with you folks over at Mangrove Therapy Group, how, uh, how would they do that? I think the best thing to do is just go to our website, mangrovetherapy.com. Mangrovetherapy.com. We would look forward to working with you. I had this one client back at Renaissance, and he would describe doing that deep, vulnerable work as uh, getting weird. And he would just be like, let's get weird. And uh, so, you know, I invite, I invite anyone, you know, let's get weird. All right. Getting weird with Brian <laughs> Gong, everybody, over at Mangrove Therapy Group. How do you think we did? Yeah, we're great. We're great.